Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. improves children's health by developing better treatments and technologies. Ranked number five in the nation, we take on the most complex, rare, and life-threatening conditions because all children deserve a healthy future. Learn more at childrensnational.org slash innovation. Welcome to Launch Left, a podcast label, a launch pad for left of center art. My name is Rain Phoenix. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. Today's very special guest is Liz Lamery on behalf of Alan Vega. We'll be talking about his posthumous record that was just released, Mutator. Alan Vega is a timeless time bandit of rock and roll, and you may know him from Suicide, but he's so much more. We're going to really dig into the record and his art career and all good things music. Welcome to the show. So you co-produced and unearthed this record. Is that right? Alan and I met in the mid-80s after he was coming off his Electra, Just a Million Dreams, and actually Saturn Strip, which was an awesome album produced by Rick Ocasek. Um, but he was coming off of that mainstream major record label stint. But he never let go of his roots. And when I met him, he was still, he had guitar pedals and rhythm, old rhythm machines all jury-rigged on, the, on, the, on his floor at the Gramercy Park Hotel. And uh, I was working as a lawyer on Wall Street, but I had always played drums in punk bands growing up in Boston. I'd sneak into the rat, you know, back then the drinking age was 18. I'm like 16 and playing drums in bands and whatnot. But I didn't know Suicide or Alan Vega. One of the women that I worked with at the, the law firm, her brother was Mark Kuczynski, Kuch, who played guitar in the Alan Vega band. So she just said one day, knowing that I was into music, we're picking up Alan Vega at the Gramercy. We're going to the Palladium. There's a big record release party for his latest album. I said, great. So that night we met. It was just an instant connection. But fast forward um, in the interest of time. But around about 88, I had been listening to Alan with, you know, experimenting with sound. He's coming off electric. He's getting back to his roots. He's kind of, he had this whole deconstructing, uh, deconstructing music theory of no notes. And this, to kind of put it in context, he had gone to Brooklyn College for art and he had studied under Ad Reinhardt, which was a, he was an amazing minimalist abstract painter who did a series of very famous paintings, black on black. So to Alan, it was the music equivalent of strip it down so there are no chord progressions, there are no keys. Everything is, is based on what you feel and hear and the idea of sound moving, moving it, 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 the movement of sound through rhythm. And so he eventually said to me, hey, you know, you're a drummer. Why don't you, we go into the studio together and we can start working with some, there's all these new effects machines uh, coming on the market and we could just start using those machines in the same way he was using the very stripped down old, you know, guitar pedals and the like. So we went in and I had been uh, recording and rehearsing with my band Snub at a small uh, rehearsal studio in the East Village called 6-8 Studio. And the engineer there was a super chill, laid-back guy. So I thought Perkin Barnes Energy and Allen's would be a really good combination. Plus, he was so chill that we came in and, 
Alan's whole ethos was you don't, you really don't want to know how these machines are intended to be used because we're not going to use them that way anyway. These are not to affect acoustic instruments. These are, these are generators of sound in and of themselves. And we're going to be pushing buttons and turning knobs. And that's basically what we did starting with Juice Avenue in the late eighties. How did that lead like to Mutator exactly? Or like- Yes. Okay. okay. So we did a couple of additional albums, Power On and Eurasion by this time. We were developing a following in Europe, but we didn't have any U.S. release. But Henry Rollins was over on tour, gets a copy of Deuce Avenue. Is like, this is so unique. Why is it not? Why do the, you, the people in the U.S. are not getting exposed to this? So he, in 1994, came over to New York, started a record label. He had already been doing his book, you know, publishing company. He had reached out. He actually reached out to Alan in 92 because he wanted, he said, listening to his lyrics on the suicide albums that he was familiar with, this man must write. He must keep journals, which sure enough, I mean, there's stacks and stacks. He wrote every night. So Henry ended up doing the book Cripple Nation, which he did do in like 94. Um, and from there, we started working with him on an album called Do Jang Prang. And in that instance, Perkin had some personal business. He was not in the studio, so we went to Dessau Recording Studios, and that was the first time that going into the studio was about recording a discrete album. Up until that point, it was really about just creating sound. And every year or so, I would say to Alan, let's pull, you know, like 10 of these things, a, a cluster of a, of, a, of a cohesive whole and put out a record. So then we can then go on tour and, you know, just kind of that was part for me, that was part of the fun of it. For Alan, he would have been perfectly happy just keep creating tracks and not even releasing any. So there was a little of that push-pull. Um, so Mutator happened at a point in time. We were back at 6A Studio. We were recording the songs that would become Mutator. And we actually had them all done. Alan's process was also once we had decided that we were going to pull 10 songs or however many it would be for an album, he would go into his notebooks and he would you know, look through all his lyrics, what they weren't really lyrics, his words and go into the recording studio and over like maybe one or two sessions, literally record the entire album. And it would often be one performance. It was all in the performance. Sometimes I would say, Can you, oh, that was so amazing. Could you jump back in and do it again? And he would do a completely different performance, <laughs> different lyrics. I mean, just as he never performed, even with suicide, that he never really performed the same songs the same way twice, or even with the same lyrics. He was very much in the moment. And to really understand Alan as a, as a creative being, an artist, um, he was, he studied some existential philosophy and, and, you know, he was, he was a brilliant scientist. He was at Brooklyn college to study astrophysics, but he was always drawing and the head of the art department happened to walk past him one day and see him noodling in the library and said, what is your major? And he said, at, at physics. And he said, no, it really should be art. So he started taking art history and painting and just being really absorbed with the whole history of art because he was always very interested in the history of music as well. I mean, the depths of his, his interest and knowledge of what came before um, was pretty incredible. I considered myself to be a fairly well-educated, you know, person and then listening to and talking to Alan, which he loved to do for hours about art, history, politics, the world, the universe. So mutator. So we had actually, like we usually did, finished um, all of his lyrics and, and his, his vocal recordings. 
And then for some reason, it wasn't quite done. And maybe because he had done it quicker, the other albums had, had really um, evolved over time. So he had just done Dujang pretty quickly. So he knocked out Mutator. But we kept going back in and revisiting the music sessions. And, by, and, and so because we were doing that, it wasn't fully mixed when I had some business I needed to step out of the studio for a while to attend to. And he just kept going. So he started working on songs that became the next album, 2007. So by the time I circled back, um, we finished 2007, which came out in 1998. And Mutator had been put on the shelf, not because he shelved it on purpose. It just it just wasn't its time. And it's really interesting to me that the title was Mutator because he named it before it kept mutating. <laughs> and, it did. and so it wasn't until we met Jared Artaud in the vacant lots that we really, I mean, Perkin had been doing, Perkin Barnes, our long-term engineer, had been um, going in and transferring all the tape because when you think about it, we went from analog to eventually Pro Tools, but we went through very iterate, different iterations, ADATs and all of this. Um, as the technology kept evolving. So he was already transferring a fair amount of that stuff by about 2014 when Vacant Lots reached out to me and said, hey, we did this cover of a suicide song, No More Christmas Blues, actually it was Vega, No More Christmas Blues. Um, and we really would love Alan to hear it, just making sure we didn't butcher his song and just to show respect and that kind of thing. And people would do that, but I listened to it and I'm like, I have a feeling Alan is going to, this is going to really resonate with him, particularly because... He wasn't in one, one like, um, he was of no genre and his influences were so varied. But when he first started his solo career, it was about kind of reinventing rockabilly. And that was from, you know, he loved Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash and Otis Redding. And obviously Elvis was like a huge influence. But when I heard No More Christmas Blues done by the Vacant Lots, they were bringing an electronic, there was, a, there was a future sound to it, but it still captured the essence of that. Mm, I knew he was going to like, and he's immediately, I mean, his reaction was so instantaneous, like, who is this? Who are they? Da, da, da. You invite them. They happen to be on tour. So he's like, they're coming through New York, invite them over for brunch. And that was like the beginning of a really nice connection because from there they asked us to collaborate on a few things. And Alan had already had his stroke. He had a stroke in 2012. He lived four years after that. And the, the whole idea of connecting to artists who are creating their own thing was super important to him. So he had had, he had had the stroke and I started going into the studio to work on some pre-production stuff for the collaborations we were going to do with the vacant lot. So we did a um, split single. So we're back in the studio and it's like Nike soldier, but that's why it's the whole idea of Nike and the soldiers. And because Alan felt athletes were tremendous artists, you know, they really are, especially at an elite level when you dedicate yourself, especially boxers. That was for me, part of the getting into the boxing was they put their life on the line, stepping into that ring. There's no greater level of intensity, right. Than, than putting yourself into a situation like that. And it reminds me of Alan standing on stage with suicide axes flying by his head, believing so strongly in what it is you're doing and your sense of purpose and meaning in what it is you're putting out into the world that you would, you would put your, you would put your life on the line for it. So long story short, Nike soldier catches my attention. So Perkin, let's take a run at it. We'll just mix this thing. And then I can bring it back to Alan and see what he thinks. So I mixed it in an afternoon. 
bring it back. And Alan's like, holy shit, where did that come from? Because once, another thing that's interesting about him, once he did something, he didn't go back and listen to it. He didn't even, he didn't, it's almost like he didn't want to remember it because he was constantly searching for something he hadn't heard before. So he's like, wow, this is great. No, he's already thinking, you know, I'm on my last legs here, sort of, not really. Um, but, you know, I'm passing the baton kind of thing. You know, you can go in. He, that was at the point that he dubbed it the Vega Vault. There's, um, you know, this all this music that was left behind. And he said, so, you know, obviously you can go in and do that when I'm not here anymore. And at that point, he had already said to Jared, because Jared would pop over. He lived on the uh, one subway stop away in Brooklyn. And he would come over and sit with Alan and they would talk about everything. Like what he used to do with Henry Rollins back in the day, in the 90s. So now fast forward, here's Jared. And he had already said to him, like, I'm passing the torch to you. And Jared is an amazing artist in his own right. He has just a great sensibility. As Alan said, you know, he just gets it. And he's he is open to absorbing and and, and learning. And, and that also that sense of, we didn't just drop down here. There's this deep sense of history and there's the collective unconscious and there's all this in the universe that we can't even begin to skim the surface of, but it's there. And the energy that is still here. I mean, I'm literally sitting in Alan's room is here. Our son is a sound engineer. So we have a recording studio set up and mm. he and I during the pandemic That's have been working so on more music beautiful. too. Yeah. I, uh, I feel a lot of uh, kismet with this idea. I've been, re- you know, posthumously releasing some of my brother's music um he passed in 1993 um over the years very slowly and painstakingly but so nourishing and amazing the opportunity to do that so i i know that you know that feeling um and how important it is for those who are living to have something uh to share thank you yes Thank, Thank you. you for doing that because that is it is important and and you know the gift is seeing how it touches other people. Yeah. This isn't trip is not for for an artist. The trip is really not about how can I create my career and right. you know, that's one of the things I love so much about him because he had no material needs. He used to joke I could live in a refrigerator box in the Bowery, but that really freed him to not worry about where, what is the context? Where does this fit in? Because it doesn't have to, if you're genuine and you're in, you're like true to yourself as a, as a as human being and as a creative being that, you know, that's a blessing that comes after. And I, I used to tell him, I think he was a little, not disappointed. I think he was more concerned about having disappointed people who helped facilitate, get him into a major label situation. I read, and I thought it was really interesting. And I wonder if you have any insight into it. Was that when he was a young art student, he would, um, he was part of like disrupting the museum culture, kind of this idea that, um, you know, art, he was an art, art for art's sake and art for exactly. the people. And it's not yes. about a commodity and, and, and it shouldn't be determined by some board few. of directors who decides right. who are the important or, right. you know, voices to be heard. Absolutely. And he had worked just backing up. He graduated from Brooklyn college in 1960. His first wife who he met in college was a Holocaust survivor, Mariette Bermowitz. And she actually wrote a book, Mendeley's journey, about her experiences. Um, but they were married from 1960 to 1970. And he was just coming out of Brooklyn College. He got a job as um, 
a caseworker for the welfare department. So through that experience, which he found very um, disheartening in many respects and learned a, a bit about how the government, you know, funding works and, and that sort of thing. And also just the disparity. He's always been someone who really deeply felt that disparity between the haves and the have-nots and the disempowered and, and a champion of the underdog, which is why I think he kind of embraced the idea of, you know, the French used to laugh, oh, you're beautiful loser or, you know, did it. And he actually, he loved that because it, it freed him. He was, he was free. And his relationship yeah. with Rick Ocasek was really interesting because Rick Ocasek, Rick wanted to be Alan and Alan wanted to be Rick only for the, well, it'd be great to have the funds so that you could do more. And I think, so he got the funding for Project of Living Artists and they created, uh, they were able to secure a space in Soho that was back when it was like mostly factories. And there he was able to, like, people were just able to drop in and do visual art, music. It was there that he was pulling in lights and wires and, and things that people had thrown out in the garbage and putting them in his piles of lights and, and um, old electronic machines that people had thrown away, old TVs, radios, whatever it was that people had discarded and piling them on the floor and creating sculptures. And Ivan Karp, from OK Harris walked into Project Living Artists one day, saw what Alan was doing. So, can you have a show ready in three weeks? And Alan, he wasn't doing it to have a show. He was there, there, and to, you know, he technically he was the janitor, but he was living there. Don't tell anyone. He wasn't, wasn't supposed to be. And he and Marty would eat day old bread, you know, from the bakery to, to uh, survive. But yeah, that's where he also met Marty Rev. Came in, and there were musicians. It was just a kind of like Andy Warhol's factory but yeah. without the conscious intention to create something commercial. Right. You know, I think that was a big oh, difference. Is that piece behind you? Um, what is That's that? one of the oldest pieces. Yeah, that's from 1983. This is an interesting period of time because with, with Ivan at OK Harris, Alan would just dump lights and, and there's a lot of, uh, you can find photos of, of these vintage floor pieces. And then after the show, he'd pull them out into the garbage after like the first show and Ivan discovered this and like, holy shit, no, because he would cannibalize his own materials for the next one. He wasn't precious about his art. Once it was done, there's the experience. We've had that experience and now we repurpose it. So Ivan would put all of his stuff down in the basement and then he'd pull it back out and rejig it. So in 1983, now he had had a hit with Jukebox Baby in the early 80s in France. So Barbara Gladstone who was a gallerist in Soho in the in the early '80s and had a very very established has a, had a very established career, um, had him do a show, uh, and she said to Alan, "You know, if you put them, if you take them off the floor and put them on the wall, I might be able to sell something." So he started doing crosses, and for him, the cross was very meaningful because it's that idea of infinity, where at some point in infinity. The lines will meet. And it also, you know, for religious symbolism, he wasn't into any particular structured religion, but the the concepts and the spirituality um, was very important to him. And so the, the cross was very meaningful to him personally as well. But anyway, so this, yeah, this is one of the earlier pieces. He had a big, they had a big opening in 83. He was just coming off where Kokasik had just done Saturn Strip on Electra. Julian Schnabel bought a big piece. Rick bought a piece. So he, you know, so he had a little bit of success there. So that then helped fund this idea of, 
you know, I can keep creating my work and not worry so much about plugging into a bigger commercial machine. Yeah. God, what a true artist. So, so refreshing and lovely to hear those stories. I too um, knew Jeffrey Deitch, but that he at some point had something to do with Alan and his yes. career. Um, and was it, was, was yeah. that so or was that the eighties as well? Or was Super that when early. He had Deitch, no. So that wasn't when he had Deitch projects. No, but rain, it's such a good story. I'm so glad you asked because Jeffrey stumbled into, well, didn't stumble, but Jeffrey um, was a young art student slash curator in training kind of thing. And, and I'm probably misspeaking, but he was in the early stages of developing his interest in becoming an art curator and happened to go into OK Harris and see these light sculptures, you know, these piles of lights and whatnot on the floor. And he said, you know, to himself, because he later told us the story that it was the most radical art he had seen. And still to this day, he believes that what Alan was doing was the most radical and, and, and very influential in certain um, areas of, of, of art. So in 1999, no, the, I believe it was the year 2000, New Year's Eve, there is, and Jeffrey had seen Alan, maybe he, he met him, I think, a couple of times when he was with Suicide, but was kind of intimidated by the whole presence. And then that's the other thing that's really interesting, because he had this incredibly intense energy, but he was a beautiful, beautiful heart. He was a sweetheart. So, um, but Jeffrey, you know, people would sometimes feel that, you know, um, that energy coming off of him was uh, intimidating, but but it, it didn't need to be. Um, but in any event, so um, Jeffrey... 2000, he's got Deitch projects in Soho and two of the young interns had been at the knitting factory the night before and had seen suicide perform. So they're talking about, oh my gosh, and it's, you know, older, obviously older generation, da, 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 da. But these guys were like, it was the most intense and the most, however they described it, I want to, I don't want to speak for them, but whatever they were saying, they were super enthusiastic about what they had just experienced. And it obviously had a big impact on them. And Jeffrey, his immediate response was, oh my God, is Alan Vega still alive? A, is he still, I wonder if he's still doing art. So they managed to find me. And then Jeffrey came over and we were living, we've been living in the same building for since the mid late eighties. Um, and they, Jeffrey came over and Alan had been doing this by now is 2001, but it was before September 11th. But he was already, it's very strange rain because the album that he had just finished doing, uh, 2007, he's already thinking something big is, is coming down the pipe. We, our son was just born. He's thinking, you know, hey, when you new parent, he's thinking about what kind of world is my child coming into. And he was doing these sculptures that were very different from anything he had ever done. They were these long, we had 22 foot ceilings. So there's these long, almost looking like um, hanging pieces, but with with images and wire, his thing, but it was it was in a different configuration. And after September 11th, so Jeffrey sees this, he's like, we've got to do a show. This is great. I, you know, he's so happy that he was still doing all, he's never stopped doing it because again, he wasn't doing it to do shows. He was doing it to do it. And so he had all the all this stuff. And even Henry, when he first came, he's like, holy shit, it's like an explosion in here of everything. Um, so Jeffrey sets up the show for February of 2002. But in the meantime, we have... September 11th. And if you went down to ground zero, there were all these hanging memorials that looked so eerily similar to what Alan had been doing. 
And he didn't even know where it was coming, why he chose to do it this way. So those pieces were there. So then Jeffrey um, did that show and Suicide had a great concert to, to end that performance. And um, it, it's interesting because Alan's wingspan of creativity was, was pretty broad because in addition to the art and the music, I've been told that for decades, you know, the mood boards at some of the top fashion houses or even not top, just underground, whatever, and, you know, full, full array um, were influenced by his, his style and how it evolved over the years. And, and again, that wasn't a conscious decision. Oh, I'm going to do this. Part of it was just necessity, right? <laughs> like anything else, you know, rip, rip its pieces of this and throw this on and da-da. And part of it was also you know, like getting ready, like, you know, he combed his hair back into the ducktail when he was young, going in, you know, high school, listening to Elvis, getting psyched to go out because maybe might be getting beat up on the street for all he knew. Um, and part of it was that, you know, seeing Iggy and seeing how Iggy performed was a game changer for him. He said the last thing he ever thought he would do would be get on stage and perform. So I think creating his image, the image stuff that he did was in part to kind of, it was almost like his getting ready to go to war and putting on your coat of armor kind of thing. So he, he, he developed a lot of listen quirky. Well, it's interesting. If you see the muscles video, the thing that I love about um, how Douglas Hart was able to really pull all those beautiful images together that Michael Handis, who's our creative director for the Vega vault has been able to, and he's in the design world. Um, he curated the images and then Douglas Hart, put them all together um, and did, did his crazy, wonderful um, effects on it. Uh, Alan, I think would really love that, that uh, video, it's but so, it's a beautiful homage, right? It's so cool that um, in some ways it's like Alan is still collaborating with all of you, you know, even after he's not in this particular, in the shell anymore, he's still by leaving this work. And, and also I think often like visionaries in the art world, and I call them visionaries when they don't think they're visionaries and when they're just making art because it, it's, it's the same as food and water and breath, right? That's what Thank makes an know. art visionary or are those artists, those creatives that are so, um, in in their truth in their the reason they're here like they're in their path and they're just creating from that space those are often to me who become like real visionaries that have such an influence on whether it's their small ecosystem around them or a bigger wider girth of you know people like the masses um it's mm -hmm. still so powerful and influential, their energy and what they did while they were in, in the physical form. And then it continues on. And, and I think for sure, uh, um, hearing your stories really uh, adds to my thoughts that Alan Vega is one of those, those visionaries. Yes. And what a gift that, um, first of all, I just want to ask you this because I think it's really interesting that you are a lawyer on Wall Street. Yeah. <laughs> and now you produced uh, Alan Vega's, Vega's record and and his children too like uh, how you went from you know that up I'm assuming you had an upbringing that valued success over your artistic leanings mm -hmm. right and that you went that yes. route and 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 that meeting Alan seemed to have and correct me if I'm wrong with any of this sort of turned all of that around a bit or made you mm -hmm. value something else no, it is. Thank you. And, and Rain, what you said prior to that about Alan as an artist is it resonates so strongly. And thank you so much for that, because I couldn't articulate it as beautifully. Um, but but that is that's how I feel. And I feel we're all very fortunate 
who are working together. We've got a, an amazing group of people who have just almost magnetized to each other to be on this mission together. So I think Alan would be very, very happy. And he also was very gracious and very generous in collaborating with others. You know, a lot of artists have their own vision or ego. He was the opposite of that. He was very, very pure about there are no mistakes, whatever anyone is bringing to this, he he would embrace um, and, and, you know, believe that, that you made things for a reason. Um, But, but, for me personally, yes. And one of the things that I was, I, yeah, I grew up in a more traditional um, suburban kind of background outside of Boston, um, Milton, Mass, which is very Irish, you know, Catholic, homogenous. Um, and, but always was interested in music and art. And I think being a young, uh, young woman thinking, well, I, I was always very independent. So I didn't want to have to rely on you know, a man to, you know, da, 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 that traditional that I had seen come in, in generations before. So going to law school for me was like an easy, oh, I'm good at school. I can do this. But I was always somebody who did a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So now as I go to the boxing gym five or six times a week, I would be skiing at the Blue Hill ski area, which was 10 minutes away. And even though I would get straight A's just to get my parents like, you know, okay, I ticked that box, but I'd be doing every job from lift operator to ski instructor to just skiing like all the time. And I was always out, I had two older brothers. So I was always out playing sports and just had a lot of energy. So I never saw myself as a conservative, you know, business person. Then I'm on wall street in the late eighties. And it was insane when I met out, he couldn't believe some of these stories because we're representing, I was working for one of the top Wall Street firms, Cahill Gordon, they represented Drexel Burnham. We had Michael Milken was a big client. I, I might get whacked if I share too much information. Kidding. Um, <laughs> but no, but it was, it was, you know, we talk about the Me Too movement. You have no idea. So, but having two older brothers, I was, you know, I was thick skinned. I was kind of a tomboy. So, uh, but some of the stuff I, I was, you know, there weren't many women on Wall Street at that time in this, in this particular realm. Um, so it was so bizarre when Alan met me, he's like, you do what? And then, but for me, he's seeing me looking like I'm, you know, a Holocaust survivor myself with like these crazy outfits and combat boots and this spike coming out of my nose and I'm playing drums in a band at CBGB's. And then the next day I'm like in my three piece suit and, and like the insanity that was going on with these deals. Cause it was like the, it was, I didn't want to be in the library doing research, so I wasn't going to be a litigator. First, I was like, okay, Neil Gordon, they have Floyd Abrams as their First Amendment litigation. And then I discovered, oh, but the young associates are in the library researching and writing briefs. Oh, no, no, no. I want to be, oh, the guys are all doing like these deals and they're going to meetings and I get to sit in meetings in here. (laughs) I quickly discovered like, holy shit, what is this? So Alan, he was really smart, even though you might think, oh, crazy artist. He totally got it. So we could talk about this insanity that was going on. But so I already had those layers. And the thing that I admired, one of the things, and I just saw Jeffrey the other day, we were talking about this, to be able to jump off out of the airplane or off the cliff without a parachute that you really need to do as a true artist, because there are no guarantees. It's not like, oh, I'll go to law school and I'll do well and da, 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 and then I'll get this job and this will be what I get paid. You know, there was none of, there's none of that. So I was very happy to facilitate his, not that he needed any facilitation, because as he said, he would have lived in, you know, in the refrigerator box, but it was helpful that, that I could, 
continue to do kind of my day thing. But for me, it was amazing that I had this outlet that I could, now we'd be in the studio and we would go in two or three times a week for decades. That's how we have so much stuff in the vault. Wow. And that's what you talked before about collaborating. Oh my gosh. Now there's an opportunity for other artists and we're kind of, you know, putting that energy into the universe that it's not just me. It's not just Jared. It's whoever, because a lot of people have, have, reached out to me after Alan Pesset, I really wish I had done something with them. You know, the, the people that he did collaborate with, it was such a beautiful thing. So there are so many sound and, and vocal tracks. That's another layer of what we intend to, to collaborate with people on. It's not like, Oh, come remix the thing. It's like, Hey, how do you want to go into this? How do you feel like going to the studio? We'll pull some sounds that Alan created and here, and here's some vocal and, and you collaborate with that. There was a time when it wasn't um, supported that people did a, a many things and could be multi-platform, whether it was in the arts mm-hmm. or, or creative space or or not. And I think, mm-hmm. and my personally think every every person is a creative. We're creating every yes. day. We create our own reality. So we're definitely all artists, but but certainly with a focus on art. I I love that yours included being a lawyer on Wall Street and art. Like that's such a wide girth <laughs> you know what I mean wide birth. but you had to have a sense of humor yeah, yeah no well, the amazing. other thing too is define people's expectations because they put you in and that's one right. thing that I think Alan and I had in common as well you know growing up in a very traditional or where there were certain expectations that you would do it to this day I mean I was wanted to be in the Guinness Book of World Records the oldest professional boxing debut and uh, seriously to just prove because there's a whole thing with ageism too that yeah that I really have problems with and even yeah. Alan he never purposely misled people about his age they just assumed he was 10 years younger because when he came on the scene he had already had 10 years in a domestic life and then he was about the same he, he wasn't in his early 20s he was in his early 30s he was almost 40 when he went to play with the crash clash when I met him he was more than 20 years older than me and I thought he was like 30 he was right. pushing 50 and, and wow. again it was because of his energy and it was yeah. it, it's it's the shell it's the difference between chronological age and biological or intellectual or whatever, however you want to describe it. So that do you think it has something, do you think it has something to do with um, like not believing traditional, traditional um, archetypes or how we're supposed to be and all that. And instead it constantly reinventing or deciding what, yeah, what your reality is in that, in that it like even age stops and moves differently. Like time doesn't have, if you don't follow the constructs, then you're not living in those constructs. Do you know what I mean? I love it, Rain. I love it. It's because it's so true. Yeah, it is. And I've, I've met so many people like that and feel that that's really, it's such a powerful, um, it's like a, that's like a, Time, a door in time that you know yes. you can open up and, and if you just stop believing that like what everyone says is reality and the way you're supposed to be you know and the tradition of, of what we it's like these rule following timeline yeah exactly. and this constant rule following it makes you old yeah <laughs> like, well my mom used to say to me what old would you, what age would you be if you didn't know the number you know that's right. it's how you feel and it's exactly. where you are and it's what what you're creating in the moment. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's that's an important life lesson. I mean, Alan was told in 2012 he might not live three to six more months. And here he is. Doing, and that's why it makes me laugh when people weigh in, um, you know, oh, he looks like a shell of his form. Hello, motherfuckers. It's like, you know, you have no idea what that sh- that life force is that is still inside that shell because yeah. otherwise he wouldn't even be here. Right. Amazing, amazing, right. and able to the stuff that he did, and then he just channeled it in different ways. He did a beautiful series of spirit paintings. He literally was speaking to, I believe, because I, you know, we we talked about it, and he wasn't able to fully articulate it, but he confirmed that that that's what it was. He was he was speaking to his spirit guides from from beyond before he passed, and he went back to the painting, um, and I think you know, again, his, his reach and his energy is still felt very, very deeply. I don't think that that just goes. Um, and I think in, in, in his works and his words, I've had so many people reach out to me and it's so, it feels so wonderful. And I'm sure you're feeling it with, with the work that you're doing with your, your brother's message that it's important. And, and, and people is going to, it's a, it's a gift to people because they sometimes need it for whatever reason. You know, it's and whatever an artist does and they put out there, there's a freedom for you to experience that unique to yourself. This song is called Muscles and the video was uh, created by Douglas Hart, Jesus of Mary Chain. And the images were pulled from the archive by Michael Handis, our creative director.
Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left of center artists in all creative fields. Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. improves children's health by developing better treatments and technologies. Ranked number five in the nation, we take on the most complex, rare, and life-threatening conditions because all children deserve a healthy future. Learn more at childrensnational.org slash innovation.